Hi there, and welcome to the LGBTQ Plus STEMcast, a podcast where we interview LGBTQ Plus scientists from different STEM fields from all over the world. I'm your host, Annabelle Gong, and in today's episode, we will be chatting with Alana Gloger. Alana is a fifth-year PhD student studying psychology at the University of Kentucky, and she's also the founder and host of the podcast Dear Grad Student. In this episode, we will be talking about her podcast, her research, and the intricacies of identity. I hope you enjoy. Hi there, Alana. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I am doing so great. I'm so happy to finally be meeting with you to record this episode. How are you doing? I'm doing so great. I was so excited to come back and talk with you on my podcast because we had like an amazing conversation on your podcast. We really did. I feel like my wheels are still turning and I feel like we had a couple of moments that I keep reliving in my head. Like every day, probably once a day, I think about how you connected studying sharks to being queer and I'm like, in what ways does that function in my life? Like, what are the things that my identity is reflected in my life? I've really gotten meta with it. So I'm excited to see what comes of this. I'm excited to take a deep dive into whatever I've created out of your brain right now. (laughs) Yeah, watch out. It might be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get started, how about you give the listeners a brief introduction about yourself? happy to do so. I'll do my best not to just literally give my own podcast intro, but otherwise. (laughs) So I'm Alana. I guess I'm an upcoming fifth year, which is disgusting. Yeah, gross. (laughs) Vomit. Um, But I'm an incoming fifth year PhD student. I'm at the University of Kentucky, and I'm getting a PhD in social psychology with a concentration in health. And I don't know, recently picked up this biostat certificate because I think I like pain. And I study the intersection of psychology in the immune system. So I'm um, really interested specifically how that functions over aging. So like psychological and immunological differences between people that determine how people healthily or don't healthily age. That's kind of what I'm interested in. And I also host a podcast. It's called Dear Grad Student, and I started it over quarantine. I'm sure we'll go into some what the origin story here in a bit. Um, and then outside of that, I am a crazy cat lady we found a cat outside last week i don't know if you've seen this oh on twitter <laughs> yes she's in my bathroom now we're working on it she might be oh. pregnant i don't know what's happening <laughs> it's fine and i like to play like a lot of simulation video games like the sims and planet coaster and i love survivor and that's you me. love survivor i love listen that was like my quarantine project my boyfriend and i had never seen an episode <gasps> and i know never in our lives and then he randomly watched like season 28 because it was on Netflix, which pisses me off because it was such a good season and you already seen it, whatever. And I was like, well, let's just start at season one and watch all seasons in order because we knew 40 was like a battle of the winners or something. Mm-hmm. And he was run season 29. <laughs> oh, so my we're really God. making it through. Yes. Yeah, so I'm an avid, avid survivor fan and general reality TV show, culty TV show fan in general. So that's me. That. My girlfriend is actually obsessed with Survivor and like pretty much for every semester since like 2019, I think she's done her like final projects for classes on Survivor because she's a comm major. So like a lot of the stuff really intersects. It's a social experiment, like TV show kind of thing. Oh my God, my dream. (laughs) Honestly, that is incredible. I really feel like somebody could do an entire PhD on like the whole 
thing just like so many phds could come from that so many theses so many dissertations truly if you're out there survivor that's the one (laughs) yeah if you're already doing that please contact me because i just need to know you (laughs) (laughs) so enough about other people's research tell me about your your own research you study aging and immunology stuff like that what specifically do you do yeah what a wonderful question to ask me just as i finished working on my nih bio sketch about 30 minutes before we started recording (laughs) i feel like i've been asking myself this for the past few days and i think there's sort of like two two or three avenues i really sort of go down the first is that like individual differences and health outcomes so we think about things like how people manage stress Um, how they regulate their emotions, regulate their thoughts, regulate their behaviors, and how that predicts their health now and in the future. That's one major area. And then sort of an extension of that is not just immediate health outcomes or future, but even just how we age, right? So there are some people in their 60s and their 70s, right, who are just at the peak of health. Like you look at them and you're like, man, I hope I'm like that when I'm 60. And then there are some folks for genetic, environmental, whatever reasons, who are quite ill in their 60s and 70s. And I'm talking about like preventable diseases, right? So like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, um, different things that different health behaviors earlier in life perhaps could have had a role in reducing the likelihood of or what have you. And so I'm really interested specifically in like the psychological factors that contribute to that. And we know that people that manage their stress better, people that manage their emotions a little bit better or in specific ways, they age better biologically and immunologically. And then the last thing that I'm really interested in recently, this whole field is called psychoneuroimmunology. And we're really well known for like, let's measure this thing in your blood. We don't know what it does. We don't really know what it is. We kind of know where it goes, but mostly it just correlates with all these things. So this is what this biomarker means, which is just bullshit. Um, So I have this like sort of newfound interest in biological measurement and the validity and reliability of our measurements, not just are we measuring what we think we're measuring, but are we measuring it often enough that, hey, we're actually measuring this thing too. So those those are kind of where i'm at um also can't wait to hear this back and literally translate that onto my nih bio sketch because that was better than anything i've come up with in the last (laughs) five hours sitting here but that's basically what i do and basically what i'm interested in certain constructs like within that really like stress self-regulation emotion regulation and then like immunosenescence which is like aging immune cells for anybody in the psych field that's kind of where i'm at fancy yeah not as cool as sharks but you know I think it's pretty cool. It's pretty like relatable to life, you know, because you want to know how, you know, this assignment that's due in a week is going to affect the rest of my life, you know, stuff like that. So what kind of got you interested in this kind of research? I know it's like, like, as I said, it's highly relatable to everyone's lives. Yeah. I mean, there's that like joke with anyone in psychology where it's like everyone's in psychology for a reason and but we can't talk about it because, you know, we're all stigmatized against our own study area. I went to college wanting to do pre-med, which is like famous last words for every person who's a psychology PhD student currently. Uh, But I went in wanting to do pre-med and I double majored in psych because I really thought I wanted to do psychiatry. 
Then I learned what psychiatry was and I was like, I do not want to do psychiatry. And then I was like, but I'm still going to do this med school thing. You know, it opens the doors. I really grew up in a kind of tough financial situation. And I just, I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that I'm never in that situation. I'm just going to do the hardest thing possible to make money because I cannot live like my children will not grow up the way that I did. So I did pre-med. And then I think it was end of my sophomore year, my boyfriend broke his ankle and we're at the hospital. He's fine. It's literally fine. But they're like, we have to do a nerve block. Do you want to watch? And I was like, oh yeah, I want to watch. Like I'm going to be a doctor. Like I just got an A minus in organic chemistry. Like I am that bitch. Like I'm going to watch this nerve block. Okay. So I pass out. Great. And I was like, I'm not going to med school. <laughs> I was like, this there is goes not your entire it. career. This is not it. But like I said, I did well in organic chemistry and I am extremely stubborn so I just kept the major but I was really trying to figure out where I landed at this intersection of biology and psychology because I was just like so interested in the right at the crux right where it was like interdisciplinary so I started with neuroscience learned I hate the brain literally cannot stand her do not like her not a fan um but I had the opportunity I did like an honors thesis and they let their honor students at my undergrad take graduate level courses so i like had met this professor she's amazing uh peggy zicola at ohio university love of my life like such an amazing mentor she was teaching this grad level course in psychoneuroimmunology spring of my junior year and i was like sure health okay and it was like day one of the class and i was like oh i think i'm doing this the rest of my life it was just something about it was like this is what i've been looking for this is right like this is right where I want to be. And I was just hooked. I was a semester away from applying to grad school. I changed every school and every mentor I was applying to. I totally changed all of like my whole trajectory. And I have not really veered since. This has been exactly what I want to do since. So that's kind of how I landed. It was all kind of an accident and mostly because I passed out. Oh my God. No, very dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any plans for after your PhD? That's that question that people start asking when you hit fifth year, right? Um, oh, yeah. Big, heavy yeah, question. I think I like literally saw a tweet that I think was word for word that this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was clinical psych and I've actually switched into experimental, which all that means is I'm no longer training to be a therapist because I'm really passionate about research. So I'm hoping to do a research postdoc after this, but I probably still have like two or three more years just depending on applying for grants, just like different different things to make me competitive for that. But I've eventually, I would love to stay in academia as of right now. The system is super toxic, but I really have this passion for mentorship and this passion for sort of just like burning the whole thing down and starting over. Um, oh, yeah. As a, <laughs> and we'll talk a lot about this, but like as an otherwise seemingly white female, I think that there's a lot that I can do in action there not necessarily in leading that but rather being a major part of action in that so yeah i'm really interested in in academia i like university settings i like students so we'll see but stay tuned to hear more about me not me like reaching that pipe dream anytime in the future (laughs) i look forward to seeing that manifest and come to life thank you i wish nothing but the best for you (laughs) i feel the same way about you oh my god thank you so much you're welcome (laughs) yeah so you have all these wonderful plans that will come true one day thank you (laughs) Um, but yeah let's let's talk a little bit about you know what you do outside of 
all this amazing research that you do. You run this really cool podcast that I was on, as I had mentioned earlier. Um, Really successful, very fun, very cool. It's called Dear Grad Student. How did this come about? Why a grad student podcast? Well, first off, thank you. I also really just loved having you as a guest. Another reason why I'm just like really thrilled to be here. Um, I truly like, thank you. You know, one of my favorite parts of grad school is, you know, at the end of the week or the end of the workday, when everyone gets together at like their peak frustration, rage and annoyance, and you just like bitch for 30 straight minutes. And you're like, yeah, like, this sucks. Let's keep doing it. That was like my favorite part of like just the the bond and the commiserating and and people who get it because there's so many people in our lives who do not understand the torture machine that we are willingly engaging with. So when quarantine hit and all of COVID hit, of course, I still had that over phone. But, you know, two of my closest friends are moms. One of them was planning a wedding that was in shambles because of COVID. Like oh my, my friends were really busy. Yeah. My grad school friends just like were really busy and like this is not a dish on them, like for very valid reasons. And I just, I found myself going to academic Twitter looking for community. I was like, I just kind of need the other people who are still just like at normal full speed in the middle of this pandemic. Like I need to feel understood. I need to feel heard. I want to like, just not feel crazy. And I don't say that word lightly. Like I really thought I was like losing it. And I went to Twitter and of course it's on Twitter. And then I was recently getting into podcasts around the same time because I was doing a lot of walking, a lot of walking. And I hated music at that point. I was like, I can't listen to the same songs. And so I was like, great, I'm going to look for a podcast of that. And I looked on podcast, you know, places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And there were a lot of grad school podcasts about like how to write a resume, how to do an interview, you know, how to pick a mentor, all of which so useful so useful. They're great tips. They're things that sometimes you have to go searching for those answers. What I didn't have was a vibe of like, this shit's really hard. Are you good? Cause like, I'm not. And I really needed that vibe. Um, if anyone listens to like my favorite murder where they really just like are off script, they don't know what they're doing, but they just like talk about murder. I was like, I need that, but grad school. (laughs) Like that's what I felt truly. So that did not exist. So I made it. I made one. And that's really how it came to be. I just had some favorite people I followed on Twitter. I just cold DM'd them. I was like, hey, you don't know me. I follow you. I've been following you for a while. I'm starting this podcast that doesn't exist. And I would love to feature you as a guest. I swear I'm not creepy. How does that sound? (laughs) And every single person said yes. In fact, to this day, I've not had a single person ever say no. And... So I did it. I started recording. I released my first episode on August 17th of last year. And you are episode 40. I guess I have 41 with a bonus birthday episode I released. And yeah, going strong. We have 17 patrons now on Patreon, a couple thousand Twitter and Instagram followers. Yeah, growing the team. I have applications out now for some job positions that will probably be filled by the time this comes out. But yeah, I just really wanted a place not to quote my own branding but like to celebrate commiserate and support each other we just need a place to bitch and to talk about real stuff and to be people in addition to the fact that we're phd students or master students or whatever we are yeah definitely wow i didn't realize how like closely our podcasts had launched like i think stemcast maybe 
was two weeks before you did or a week before it's so awesome that like grown together and like now we're here now we're here almost a year later yeah quarantine has inspired so many wonderful things (laughs) truly truly and I think it's awesome that you know like you said we have all these resources for grad school all of these like how to do grad school before you get in but we don't have a here's what it actually looks like once you're there and here's here are the struggles but also the celebrations that you know that we do once we're in grad school and I think it's so awesome that your podcast like features those types of subjects because you know we don't really hear about it yeah and I do have three sort of focuses right so the first one is like a day in a life where we just get to like talk about a normal life very free form but there's also themes about like people who've switched PhD advisors. Should I take a gap year? Like what have grad students who are now in grad school took gap years said? You know, being LGBTQ, like in your episode or my episode with Lex, or even episodes about being black in academia, you know, people talk about these things on Twitter or people talk about these things separately in their own sort of categories, but none of these things exist on their own. All of these things are all happening at the same time in the same stratosphere. So I'm glad I've kind of brought it together and I'm excited to continue growing that, but it's really grown in a way I wasn't expecting. I thought that this would be something I would look back at and like, I'd be like, wow, Alana, look at that another thing you did. So cringe, like you're that person, like, but it wasn't, which is great. (laughs) It had nothing to do with me. Everyone who listens is why this is great. So it's fun. Yeah, it is super fun. And you know, I was kind of thinking the same thing about about the STEM cast. I was like, yeah, this this is like a passion project now, but I feel like you know, in a few years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, why did I do that? But it's just so fulfilling to know that like these podcasts are actually holding value and impact for folks. And it's just so awesome. Yeah, it's been cool because it's not only fulfilled my need for that kind of community that I was looking for, but just hearing when other people reach out and like, I don't know these people, maybe I don't even follow them on Twitter or Instagram and they're like, this has fulfilled that need for me. That has been really impactful. Like, it's one thing when people I know say that to me, I'm like, cool, like, I'm really glad I did that for you, you person that I know, you know, that's a niche I understand you needed. But when it's people that like, I don't have any connection to them. Like people have told me like, oh, my roommate's friend recommended this to me. Like I didn't even find you on Twitter. Like those are the most incredible moments because I'm like, wow, like you really don't know me. And like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but apparently I come off as helpful. That's great. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're very helpful. Oh, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. And just to stroke your ego a little bit more, after my episode came out on your podcast, someone approached me through my Twitter DMs, who I didn't know, and was like, I'd listened to your episode, and I related really hard to it. Oh my! Gosh. And it was amazing. Thank you. And I was like, oh my god. So many people reach out to guests now and not me, which I think is really funny. Like, I don't know if I've become unapproachable. I hope not. But it's usually guests who are like, yeah, someone said they listened to my episode. I'm like, oh my gosh, tell me about this because people don't tell me anymore. They just go to the guest, which is like great. But also like, you guys can tell me too. It's fine. I don't need it. I don't need the validation. I'm strong and I'm confident already. It's fine. And Alana validation. Do it now. If you're liking this episode, send her a DM now. <laughs> very, very culty. I love those vibes. Oh, God. Yeah. So 
during your podcast, kind of like my podcast, I guess, you've been able to interview so many people of different diverse backgrounds of like different identities from like everywhere pretty much. Has that helped you like find yourself or like discover aspects of your identity that you hadn't really explored before, stuff like that? This is such a good question. I think that it's done two things for me. The first is really unexpected, but I'm somebody who holds strong opinions, but who, despite being like a pretty, not like a dominating person, I have a big personality, but when it comes to holding strong opinions, I get pretty submissive. Like I'll hold an opinion, but I'm really great at speaking out about it, or I wouldn't really be able to articulate exactly how I felt about something just out of fear of saying it wrong or being in being interpreted incorrectly. Well, that's gone. I hold very strong opinions and I feel like I'm much more comfortable verbalizing them and taking action towards them. So for example, like Black Lives Matter, something that I was really passionate about it back in 2014 when everything was going down in Ferguson, I didn't really know how to verbalize that past just saying Black Lives Matter. It was in many ways probably very performative if I look back. But having been in a position where I'm really kind of talking about these things with guests and being sort of, I mean, I'm not the voice, but having a voice in a conversation so publicly has really allowed, actually kind of forced me to figure that out. And it's been really good for my own growth to be able to do so. And in doing so, I feel like I've been able to better, I don't know, like synthesize or like mold or meld these opinions with the identities that I hold. So, you know, I know we're going to talk about this, right? But I have never been more vocal about being bisexual in my life. I've never been more vocal. Well, that's not true. I was going to say I've never been more vocal about being Jewish. That's probably not true. But I'm more vocal about being Jewish in academic settings now. And so there's different things like that where I've not only been able to be more confident in my own opinions, but in that way, more confident in the identities that I hold and the opinions I hold around those identities in these academic spaces. So... It was like transformative in ways that are kind of convoluted, but mostly are just unexpected. And it's been really nice. I think that podcasting especially gives both the host and the interviewee a lot more confidence to like just speak freely. And mm -hmm. I feel that I've grown that way too as a podcast host, which is super, super awesome. So you mentioned that your bisexual identity was something that you hadn't really spoken about a lot before. Do you mind elaborating on that? I would love to elaborate on this because <laughs> I really feel like my coming out story is not an expect, like thinking about knowing myself is not expected. So my mom was a club kid in the eighties. She like worked at every gay bar in Cleveland. Like I grew up with like seven gay uncles, like oh, being, well. oh my God, so, so <laughs> great. Being out and proud was like not an issue growing up. This was not no not frowned upon i was like pro gay rights as a six-year-old right i mean like that was me ahead of your time i honestly i mean yeah truly <laughs> <laughs> so i was it was always really positive you know my uh my dad got remarried and my stepmom's ex he's gay and remarried and very involved in, in my step siblings lives so therefore my lives weirdly enough knew my mom back from the club days it's all very confusing but basically <laughs> on both sides of my family like being gay was like fine Enter me as a 16, I don't know, 15, 16 year old being like, am I gay? And like freaking out about that constantly in my head. I was in a relationship in high school and I knew that I was enjoying the relationship and I was sexually attracted to the person I was with. But I was like also having these really confusing thoughts about 
women. And I had so much shame about that that I like was in absolute denial. I mean, repressed that for a really, 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 really long time. And like when I look back, not really for any good reason, like there were not a lot of anti-gay anything in my life growing up at all. It was really just internalized. And then in college, I was dating somebody new because got cheated on because that's what happens when you date somebody in high school and go to college with them. But then I had a new boyfriend, you know, just like the straightest white Christian man you've ever met in your life. God bless him. And I was still like, what's going on? Like, why am I having these feelings? What does this mean about me? Like, can I not be like losing my mind, freaking out? And one day, my best friend who, you know, we used to have conversations about how like we're definitely straight. Okay. Uh, (laughs) One day she came out and I was like, maybe I'm bi. And I'm not kidding. It was like from that moment on, it just all dissipated. Like there's been no questioning, no stress, no dysphoria. I'm just like, oh, it's just both. And admitting that to myself took a while. I don't remember the first person I came out to. But I remember coming out to my boyfriend and we've been dating for like three years at this point. And so I was really worried because I was like, I don't want him to think that I like learned this in any experiential way while we were dating. Like that's not what went down. And I remember telling him and I was like so nervous. I was probably crying. And he was just like, I know. What are we having for dinner? Like, thank you for telling me. I already knew this. And like, what's our plan tonight? I was like, oh. But I would love to tell you the story of how I told my family if we have time. Oh, yes. Do go ahead. Okay. So like I said, every gay thing is fine. All right. Uh, I was on vacation with my dad's side of the family. We went to Georgia and it's me, my step siblings, there's two of them, my brother, my dad, my stepmom, and then my stepmom's ex-husband who's remarried to a man. So those are gay, but they're like my dad's stepmom and then my stepmom's ex and husband are like the four best friends there ever were. It's like great. Anyways. <laughs> We're in the living room. I really just wanted to tell them, like still in the same relationship, there was absolutely no reason to tell them. I just like had this need to be like, I just need them to know I'm bi, but I don't want to be weird. So of course I was as weird as effing possible. (laughs) We're sitting on the couch, okay? It's me, my stepmom's ex, his name is Gus, and then his husband, Brian. (laughs) We're sitting on this couch and I just look back and forth and I'm like, there aren't any straight people on this couch. (laughs) (laughs) and they look at me and they go are you gay and I was like I'm bi and they're like okay (laughs) and then we didn't talk about it (laughs) and it was just the weirdest they like days later they were like why did you do that I was like I just wanted you to know and they're like why did you make it weird I was like you know I gotta be honest like in my head in that moment it wasn't weird but yeah so I just of course had to make it as weird as possible and you know like I said growing up like the gay thing was okay or like whatever it is was okay i don't know if it was like a jewish thing you know i was raised orthodox and i was at an orthodox temple just meaning quite religious it was never anti-gay and i went to jewish summer camp and i mean isn't everyone gay at jewish summer camp i mean it was just like never (laughs) it was just like never a concern which i know is a very different experience for a lot of people but i still had this like very internalized i don't know if it's biophobia or like It was like everyone else could be, but I couldn't. And I still don't to this day understand where that ever came from or like where that shame came from. But it was strong for a long time. That's really interesting that like the Jewish community, I didn't know that if they were so accepting of like LGBTQ identities. Is that like pretty across the board or was it just like localized? Yeah, that's a great question. I think 
when I think about it, you know, more conservatively religious people, so that's going to be like Orthodox, in many ways just hold more, just more conservative views probably. But I guess that I don't want to give like an official, like, I don't know if I have the official answer on this, but I think that like LGBTQ anything in Judaism has like, as far as I understand, just like not really ever been an issue. Or if it was, it was like in the 90s or just like years and years and years ago. Like it's always been celebrated. I told you this when we were recording your episode of my podcast, the summer camp I grew up at this summer, they're allowing kids to cabin based on their gender identities. And like, we're talking like middle school, high school kids. And they're just basically like, this is what we're doing. You can unenroll your child if you're not comfortable with it. And that's, everyone's like, yep, cool. I think they literally were like one person unenrolled. You have to think like hundreds of kids go to this camp. Yeah. So this was like encouraged. This was like asked for. So I think that it is a Judaism thing. Definitely more reform, um, which would be less conservative, um, you know, Judaism like I know that there are definitely female rabbis definitely gay female rabbis trans female rabbis probably trans male rabbis as well and it's just like totally acceptable if not encouraged from all of my experience in Judaism so far that's awesome yeah and I know that like even non-religious uh summer camps wouldn't even think of doing that so that's like super awesome but there's so much inclusivity happening right now yeah but unfortunately, it didn't really stop the internalized biphobia from happening yeah. within you for whatever reason. Isn't that wild? I know. I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. So, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. I'm interested to like, I'm interested to hear, because we haven't talked about this on a podcast episode yet, about how being in a heterosexual relationship has affected your experiences as a bi person. And how, you know, you say that you're not gay enough. I guess I'm struggling to word this so much because I know that you also struggle with it. So like together, it's just like, I guess I just want to hear more about like the struggle that you have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the first thing I think of whenever I want to talk about like passing privilege or passing or or biphobia or any of that right? So I think the first thing that comes to mind to anybody who isn't in this position is that it's like self-victimization. And that's really not what I want to convey when I talk about this. I certainly don't have it harder than people who aren't passing, but it really does create this kind of unique, like self-questioning, self-doubt that is unique to anything else that I've really experienced. So, you know, yeah, like I mentioned before, I'm in a very heterosexual relationship. And I say very because my partner is very cisgendered. He's very heterosexual, unfortunately, fortunately, who knows. And, you know, white Christian male. So I'm dating, you know, that. <laughs> I just mean, I'm just like dating the quintessential like white Christian cisgender male. So it's very heterosexual. And I came out during that relationship and it wasn't for any reason of like experiencing anything. And in fact, like, I'm not ashamed to share, like, I've not been in a relationship with a woman or like, I've not engaged sexually with a woman. And so there's a lot of like, I never need to tell anybody I'm bi ever. People wouldn't question it. It would not affect me. The only thing that it affects would be like staying true to who I am and like that intense discomfort, questioning, all of that that I mentioned before happening on the inside. So really it's all my personal 
comfort or personal like aligning with my own identity that I announce it because the only thing that makes that stress go away is fully owning that I'm bi. But exactly like you said, it makes me feel like I'm not bi enough. And I said this to you before, that part of the reason I had waited to reach out to be on this podcast is because I didn't think I was queer enough to be on the LGBTQ plus Demcast because I was like, I'm not bi enough. And it really also kind of intersects with my Jewish identity in a way because no one can see me because hopefully we're not putting this recording anywhere because oof, nope. yikes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I just like don't look great, but it's fine. I am blonde and I'm white and I have blue eyes. And what that really means is I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, which is just a Jew from like Germany, England, like those areas, as opposed to Sephardic Jews, which are from um, areas of Spanish descent. So usually they have maybe dark, a little bit darker skin, dark hair, dark features. Then there's like Mizrahi Jews, and those are going to be from the Middle East in that sort of area. So I look white. I live in the state of Kentucky. I look like every other Southern Christian woman, minus maybe the curly hair part. So day to day, like living down here is kind of a mind fuck because I feel like I'm constantly being like, not trying to not assimilate too hard, but like I really have to force the Jewishness in me because otherwise it's not reinforced in any other way. And like, I told you this as well in the past, I'll share it here. You know, in my freshman year of college, like there was a guy at a party who probably thought he had good intentions, but like, you know, microaggression or maybe not micro was like, you know, it's crazy to me that you're Jewish, like with blonde hair, blue eyes. Like, I think you probably would have survived the Holocaust. Oh, and I was I like, about that. oh, and then I was like, I'm really interested in why you thought that was a good idea, but we're going to let that go. And like there, I was an idiot. Fine. But, you know, things like that, like it feels very strange when I look around me down here and I'm like, looking Jewish is a really controversial statement because it's kind of a racist statement. But there is something to be said about the fact that I, not that I don't look Jewish, but that I look white Christian Southern woman and what that has meant for my identity. And again, being like, not Jewish enough, not bi enough. Like, I understand that I have passing privilege, right? I can come off as a white Christian woman whenever I want to. I can come off as a white heterosexual cisgender woman whenever I want to. And that absolutely benefits me. And it also gives me this incredible amount of like, self-doubt and self-questioning that I don't really hear people talking about. And obviously it is not at the same level as what people who cannot pass are experiencing. Like I'm not at all trying to compare that, but it is an identity mindfuck that I really think is this like unique flavor that people who are passing in whatever way they're passing through things could probably also testify to. Like it's really frustrating to have to constantly come out, to have to constantly be like, no, yes, I am Jewish. No, I don't believe in Jesus. Yes, I'm sure. Like, constantly. It's a lot. And it's really interesting how much of our identities lie on societal perception of us rather than, like, an internal perception of ourselves, which I think gets into the whole self-doubt and self-questioning. It definitely, like, Although societal perceptions can help with your identity, I feel like in most cases, it actually hinders our ability to kind of view ourselves truly as like how we want to see ourselves. And this is like an issue I've actually like vocalized on on my Twitter before regarding my like queer identity and stuff like that. But I find it really interesting that you hold these really two very valid strong identities that you should be celebrating 
but you feel like you can't because of all of these outside thoughts that are like put on to you I guess yeah exactly and it's so interesting that way that you've worded that because my like societal perception of me I feel like is very separate than my internal perception of myself I do feel like they're kind of constantly in conflict about the fact that like I am always trying to prove to the societal interpretation of who I am that I'm not that and that's really exhausting and again like I cannot say enough times that like this is not as exhausting for me as it is for people of color as it is for disabled people visibly disabled or not as it is for visibly religious people you know all of that I'm, I'm really not I'm not trying to say I have it worse I'm just trying to say like there is sort of like I said a special flavor to this that I don't hear talked about as much but it is certainly constantly in conflict that societal versus internal like perception of who I am I guess this pandemic has given me and a lot of people time to kind of remove ourselves from that societal perception. Have you found the same within your quarantine experience? Yeah, this is such, I've seen a lot of people talking about this on Twitter throughout Pride Month, actually, specifically. I think that I'm the most bi I've ever been. And that sounds really weird because like nothing's changed. Like (laughs) still the same boyfriend, like very predictable. She's boring. But (laughs) I feel like I've just said it so many times and I've talked about it so much on my podcast that I really have gone to a point of being like, no, I am bi. Like not just saying it, but really believing it more than I have in the past. And I feel like part of that has been, you know, with quarantine, you really remove this like in-person weird, like all eyes are on you when you're talking about this thing. Like you can just sort of freely say something and like I'm in the comfort of my home. makes it a little bit easier every single time to say it and believe it. And that has just grown immensely through the pandemic. I also feel like I'm tweeting about it more. I also find that I'm allowing myself to like place myself within the category of queer. Like when I think it's like episode 11 or something of my podcast with Kara Davidson, I literally was like, I don't call myself queer. And like, I look back on that and I'm like, it kind of makes me sad. Like that was biphobia. Like that was me being like, I'm not bi enough to call myself queer. And I think part of that is because I'm pretty cisgender, but like I am queer and that's okay. And even if it's a spectrum of where people fall, like I still am as qualified. And I know like this literally, you said this to me and I feel like I'm like taking those vibes from forever ago when we were meeting, but like I am bi enough to be queer. I am queer enough to be queer. And I feel like the pandemic has given me the permission to become comfortable in that skin and saying that out loud and believing it. And, you know, my boyfriend's really great about me being bi. Like, there are times that, like, we'll be doing something. Like, I'll make a little comment. He'll kind of look at me and go, are you bi? Like, isn't that cute? Like, look at you. And I'm like, look at me. And, like, (laughs) it's really sweet. Because, like, I mean, he knows, like, I'm not going to cheat. Like, it's nothing like that where I'm, like, questioning our relationship, which has also been really beautiful for me to allow myself to be in both of those places. But it's just, like, so funny because, like, even he'll even do that to cats. He'll be like, oh, your mom's a little bit gay. Like, this is so great. And I'm like, yeah. So he's really good about celebrating it, too. And I feel like that's been able to grow over quarantine as we spent more time inside together. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's really interesting to me. I'm just going to point this out here that you have a couple of times kind of said, you know, I'm not going to cheat on him. Like, this wasn't an experimental kind of thing. and 
I feel like that. I know those phrases really. It's still I, I there. Isn't the that crazy? Internal biphobia kind of popping because out because it's the trope, bit. right? People hear <laughs> yeah. bisexual and they're like, "Did you find out by cheating?" Like, I think pretty sure like even my dad asked me that at one point i was like oh no no like <laughs> no absolutely not and it just like comes along with it i do you're so right i feel like i'm still defending myself and i don't need to yeah you should be unapologetic about your bi identity there's no need to justify it at all thank you i'm bi that's it exactly exactly <laughs> so with all of this in mind with i mean you have this amazing ongoing journey of feeling comfortable in your skin and I can really start to see you being comfortable in it I mean I'm so happy that you reached out to like this podcast even though you didn't think you were enough anyone who is a part of the queer community whether you're bi in a, in a heterosexual relationship or just like the gayest quote-unquote person alive is allowed here and this is an inclusive space for everyone what kind of advice do you have for folks who are kind of in this similar experience whoa (laughs) i feel like my advice would be how do i say this without being cliche uh what i here's okay i'm gonna say the cliche but then i'm gonna like unpack it so it's like not that cringe (laughs) but really truly like whatever identity you hold is enough and it's so it's so oversaid but like me spending five years questioning whether or not i was gay or bi or why i had certain feelings that i had like didn't earn me the identity of bi like just being bi was enough to be bi like i didn't need to suffer any longer to prove to myself i was or not and i feel like for a really long time it was like uh well if this is still happening after this amount of time then maybe i am and it's like you don't have to suffer to earn this identity if you are then you are and along with that this actually reminds me of something from your episode and i mean i guess like in the line of thought here of taking my own advice you know i've never applied for an academic scholarship because i'm queer like there's a lot out there for lgbtq scientists that i am like i can't apply for this because they'll i can't prove it to them i'm not i can't you know blah 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 so one of the ways that I think going forward, I'm going to be working on that is like applying for some of those and being like, I am queer enough to qualify. Like I am. And I don't need to prove that I was suffering internally for five plus years, questioning myself and who I was and faking it. I just am because I am. So I guess my advice to other people, you know, I don't know if people are questioning, but I think that there's a lot of like fluidity with sexuality and gender right now where there's just questioning in the area of like, what do I call the things that I'm feeling? And so if you're in that in-between place or you're just kind of floating along, figuring that out, like you don't need to prove to yourself that you are like, you don't have to suffer through to like earn it. You know, you can just be what you are. And I think that's my biggest piece of advice. And I wish that I had taken that earlier because there would have been a lot less suffering, a lot more bisexuality. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up this theme of, of suffering because I feel like in especially queer spaces, we focus so much on the suffering, but we don't really focus as much on the celebration of our identities and like the happy parts of them. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because, you know, not while suffering is part of queer identity, it's also sometimes not the biggest part of queer identity. And yeah, yeah, 
I think what's interesting about what you just said is that the suffering all came before. Like since for me personally, like since I have been like, you know what, I'm bisexual, I think there's only been joy for me. There has been almost no shame in the things that I enjoy, in the things that I engage with, in thoughts I have. Like none of that has felt shameful. All of that was really like any of the suffering was from the denial of who I was, not for who I was. And I think that's a really important point of like, I think being queer has a lot of joy in it. I think it's a lot of fun. I think that it's a really inclusive community in a way that other communities, not that they aren't, but that, I don't know, when a group of people have been through a collective experience of like trauma, I guess, and they come together, there's just this sense of total inclusivity. And the bisexual community is a little bit iffy just because there's a lot of internalized biphobia. There's a lot of people outside the community that like don't vibe with it. So like fine. But I have had a lot of joy. And I like that you bring that up to say like I've had a lot of joy in it, even if I'm still in this heterosexual relationship and I'm not engaging in the bisexual community in a queer relationship. Like I've still experienced so much joy in being who I am completely. I love that. That made my heart feel warm. Good. (laughs) Happy Thursday. (laughs) Happy Thursday. And so with that lovely, just like, oh my God, I just, my heart is just so warmed by that because I love that you are feeling bisexual in all of yourself right now. And that's just wonderful. Can I say one more thing? Yes, you can. I I just want to say, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but I think that there's been a huge amount of growth in me internally since you and I last met. And I feel like you have been a really big part in this, like, I don't know, I feel like Marvel, like phase two of like, not just like being bi, but like being bi. And in terms of like internal acceptance and not just like outwardly performing as a bisexual person, but like truly internally believing I'm enough. I feel like a lot of growth over the last month specifically has been because of conversations you and I had. So I just want to say thank you. Oh my God. I really value our conversations that we've had both in this podcast and in your podcast, because I feel the same way. I think that gears are turning up here, you know? So many gears here, (laughs) a lot of gears. So with that, where can we find you? Where can we find your podcast where can we find my episode specifically (laughs) amazing yes so uh my twitter my personal twitter is alana underscore gloger and you spell that e-l-a-n-a underscore g-l-o-g-e-r you can find the podcast on twitter at dear grad student on instagram at dear grad student pod And all episodes are on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but you also can check out the podcast on the podcast website, which is deargradstudent.com. There's merch on the website. There's places to support the podcast. All the episodes are there. If you want to be a guest, there's a form there. There's an about me section where I talk about myself. And um, yeah, everything, really everything can be found there, but that's where you can find... You can find me on ResearchGate. I'm also a grad student. Oh my god! Uh, oh my god yeah, you I don't. Are? I like don't. I mean, like it'd be really cool to like shout that out. Like if I were publishing, but I'm like not right now. But like <laughs> one day I might come out with research, and it will be on ResearchGate. I have a Google oh Scholar. God. I don't know. There's oh my there. god! I know she's really gro- moving up in the world. Uh, but that's where you can find me. Literally everywhere. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alana. I just like had a blast talking with you. It's always just so fun chatting with you. So yeah. 
And thanks for being on my podcast. You're episode 40. For anyone listening, that's deargradstudent.com slash episodes slash 40. You can find Annabelle's. And I agree. I've had a ton of, like, a ton of fun getting to know you. And I'm like, this can't be the end, right? We're going to have to, like, do another episode or something in the future. We'll have to. Like, Like, we always get so deep. Yeah. A part two, maybe in, like, a few months where we've grown even more. Yes. (laughs) The growth. (laughs) Well, I'm going to sign off with your signature sign off okay all right well thank you so much alana for speaking with me today and hashtag bye hashtag bye (laughs) and once again folks that was alana gloger thanks alana for chatting with me and thank you for listening you can find all of our social media at linktr.ee slash lgbtq stemcast In order to focus on my thesis and to recenter myself as a creative and as a science communicator, I will be taking a hiatus for the foreseeable future. I just want to give a huge shout out to everyone who I've interviewed and to Felix who has done an awesome job, to Io who has been a part of our team as well. Um, I'm so grateful for all the wonderful connections that I've made in this past year. I've grown so much as a science communicator and just as a person in general because of all of the amazing people that I have talked to and because of all of the support that you have given this podcast. So thank you so much. I hope to see you on the STEMcast soon. If you want to follow my journey as a scientist, you can follow my Twitter at Annabelle Gong. It's just my name. And yeah, see you around. <laughs>